Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Well, this morning we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke as we uh, were with uh, Jesus and his disciples and they're out going from town to town and uh, preaching, teaching, healing, and all of those things. Uh, last week in chapter 5, we ended, uh, so we're coming into chapter 6 this morning, we ended with the Pharisees asking, why doesn't Jesus' disciples fast, like John the Baptist or the Pharisees? And Jesus basically says, can the, uh, the, the party of the bridegroom, can they be mournful and sad when they're at the wedding feast? Of course not. And, and he goes on to explain it by way of a couple parables. The parable of the new wines in old wineskins, it just doesn't work that way. You've got to put something new into something new. And this is the point. He also talks about putting a patch on a piece of clothing that if you don't match it up right, it's not going to work. And what he's doing, he's basically bringing to the Pharisees that are questioning him, a new revelation. He's bringing the new covenant. We just celebrated that covenant in blood shed for us, that we are now free indeed, and he's preaching liberty, right? But they want to know about fasting and all these rules and regulations and laws that they've made unto themselves. 613 laws, 365 thou shalt and 248 thou shall nots, and, and it's just like it's, it's mind-boggling. And, and Jesus says, you know, it's much simpler than that. And, and we're going to get into that then this morning in chapter 6, continuing on in verse 1. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of the grain and ate them, rubbing it in their hands. Okay, so they're out on the road. It's a Sabbath. It says the um, second Sabbath, and I've done all kinds of homework, and there's all kinds of questions about, well, what was the first Sabbath then? And you can go back and go back into Luke's gospel, and we, we're really not clear what this means. But what it does imply, at least this much we know, we've already tangled with this batch of guys, this, these Pharisees, these religious goody two-shoes, right, the legalists, Already we've had some Sabbath showdowns, and so here comes another one, okay? We're going to talk about this a little bit, but they're going through the grain fields, it says, and they're plucking the heads of grain and eating them, right? So we know from the, the, the Scriptures, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, the law allows that anybody that's hungry can simply walk up to the edge of a field, an orchard, a vineyard, and they can feed themselves. That was the law of gleaning. Okay, we see it front and center in the book of Ruth, right? And the gleaning that she is doing and how it's attractive to Boaz that, that he wants to glean in her, he, she wants to glean in his fields and, and it brings it together really part of the, the birth line of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so this is a beautiful thing, being able to go and it'd be no different if um, you were coming by my house and uh, you know, I had some orchards and the apples are hanging out onto the road and you're hungry, have an apple. I don't care. I mean, but don't come and bring a box, right? I know when we were in the Philippines, and I don't mean to make too much fun of them, but this was something I thought was very funny, is every time we would go to some big potluck or wedding or some huge social affair, I mean, we could be going to the college and all the dignitaries are there in their formal attire and everything, but when they broke out the food, for starters, it's a mad rush. Nobody gets in line. Everybody's just trying to get to the food first, and they always bring their Tupperware with them. <laughs> now, that's probably, is it true, Neri? Kind of, right? It's like, oh, you know, and, and uh, well, we, I do that now, too, so. <laughs> but, um, you know, the idea is, yes, you can have what you need. You're hungry, eat, okay? And that's what the disciples are doing. They're going through the field and plucking grains of um, wheat, but the Pharisees have a problem. It says in verse 2, and some of the Pharisees said to them, what are you doing? What is not, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, 
okay? We've talked about the Sabbath a little bit before. We're going to get into it a little bit more today. But what day of the week is the Sabbath? Anybody know? It's Saturday because it is the last day of the week. We get the Sabbath from actually creation. When God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, it says he worked for six days, and on the seventh day he Sabbathed. He rested. That's literally what the Hebrew word Sabbath means, is rest. He rested from his work. He just took time to enjoy the fruits of his labor, just to enter into this glorious creation that he had made to share with man. And so he started the Sabbath. We read in Exodus, in chapter 20, you know this one as the Ten Commandments, and uh, the, the Sabbath the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy or separated or special. It's a special day. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. I brought this out last week because we were just teaching on this last week. Most people know, yeah, I get to rest on the seventh day, but do you ever notice it says you're supposed to work on the other six? <laughs> work. It says six days you will work. You will work. Okay? And then you'll get a day off. And remember, this is written to these Jewish Israelites, right, who have been slaves for 400 years. They never got a day off. And now as God is giving the constitution to the newly constituted Republic of Israel, one of the first thing he says is you get some time off. You get a down day. You get a Sabbath, a rest day. You shall work six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your brother, daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For, and this is the reason why, this is the pattern. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, or made it holy, made it separate and special. And so it was one of the Ten Commandments, right? This is thou shalt and thou shalt not, you shall honor the Sabbath day. Now, as it goes on, these Pharisees, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, as you read this, it says to do no work. And what are they accusing the disciples of Jesus Christ of doing? What kind of work? It's kind of funny. If you go to the Talmud, which is their, their book of teachings that they've codified, all these different regulations, um, they were guilty of four different offenses. They were guilty of reaping, that is work. They are guilty of threshing. Have you ever taken a grain and just rubbed it between your hand, right? And then they're guilty of winnowing. <sighs> you blow the chaff away. And then they're guilty of preparing a meal for themselves on the Sabbath. You know, it's funny. In Israel, they've brought us many amazing inventions. The science that, goes, that comes out of Israel is just fascinating. But one of them you can be really grateful for is the crock pot. Because the idea is you put all your ingredients in before sunset on Friday and then just hit the heater to low heat and it cooks and you've got something to eat on Saturday, right? And so you're not supposed to even prepare a meal. And these, these disciples are being accused of doing, doing something that is not lawful. Now, these laws, remember I said, we just mentioned it last week, 613, as you can go through a list in the Bible. Nobody wouldn't even know all those lists, let alone all the little teeny details and all that, the rules and the regulations, and it's just maddening. You know, I was reading a uh, statistic this last spring, I think, sometime. But, um, you know, Idaho is the least regulated state of the 50 states. As far as regulations on the book, um, in just the last term of our governor, and this is not a political campaign promotion, but he campaigned to reduce government. And in the last cycle, he's actually dropped over 10,000 regulations off the books. We got about 40,000 regulations on the books. Our neighbor, Oregon, in comparison, had 130,000. In the same time frame, they've added 15,000 more. And you don't even want to talk about California. Nobody knows what the rules are, you know, when you're getting sideways with all these things. And this is one of the problems with the Pharisees, right? You know, they, they, they're all holier than thou, and they want to be so legalistic, and they'll catch you in every little detail of the law. But Jesus is saying, there's something new coming. We got new wine, okay? We're, we're doing something different here, and it's not going to fit in your old wineskin, okay? And so... 
he, it happened on the second day, the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grains and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. Innocent enough. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, right? And, and it's so interesting, this Sabbath. You know, G, uh, God would say in Isaiah 58, I love this one. I didn't mark it, but we'll look it up here. God is taking the Jewish leadership to task, the lawyers, the scribes, and those people that are responsible for leading the children of Israel. And um, he asks them this question about fasting. We read last week, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that the, you br and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? This is the real fast that God wants us to fast, to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see them naked, that you cover them and that you hide, not hide yourself from your own flesh. He says, in, the, in doing that, your light shall break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. So it is not a holy thing, a sacred thing to say somebody's hungry, but I'm not going to feed them. Uh, I was looking at an interesting thing uh, happened in Israel. It was a couple years back, but it was in one of the communities in um, Jerusalem where they're really tightly compacted together, we read in the Bible, but everything's really, really tight. And um, there was the community of ultra Orthodox Jews living in this apartment complex, and something sparked and caught a fire, and they all ran to the courtyard because the building was on fire, and they were trying to hash out whether it's right or wrong to pick up the phone and call the fire department because picking up the phone and making that connection according to their law is breaking the Sabbath law. This was on the Sabbath. And finally, they, they hashed it all out and decided to call, but it was too late and the building burned down, right? And these are some of the things that we see when people get all carried away with the laws, the rules, and the regulations. You know, of the Ten Commandments, nine are repeated and emphasized by Jesus in the Gospels and throughout the epistles of the New Testament. There's one lacking. Want to guess which one it is? The Sabbath. It's interesting because the Gospels, this new wine, the epistles, this new grace that we live under was something separate from the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to try to explain a little bit of that, but in Exodus chapter 31, okay, we just got the Ten Commandments out of the book of Exodus. Moving on a little bit further, it says in Exodus 31 at verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And it goes on for the next five verses and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. This is a sign to the children of Israel between me and you. Who is God saying the Sabbath is for? It's a sign for the children of Israel. They would be set apart. You could recognize that they were following God and his precepts, his commands, his judgment, um, and that they would keep the Sabbath. But as we get into the new Sabbath, and here we see Jesus even rebukes the Pharisees. He says, but Jesus answered and said to them, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and he ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. This is a passage that comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 21. David's on the run. He's got his mighty men with him. He comes to Abathar, the priest, and uh, he says, man, I'm so hungry. Can you give me that showbread that's on the table? If you go into their tabernacle or their place of worship, you would come in and you would find a table with 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And those showbreads were to show that God was provision for Israel. 
but it was only meant to be ate by the priests. But David wasn't a priest, and neither were his mighty men. But in doing this, he talks to Abithar, and he says, you know, we're, we're going to starve. What is more important, to, to take care of us or that we starve to death? In Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, God says, For I desire mercy more than sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And Abathar was merciful, and uh, he gave the bread, and David and his men ate. There was a spy. He ratted out David, and, you know, the story goes on through the book of Samuel. But in doing this, Jesus is relating this back to these Pharisees. Don't you even know in your own scriptures, your own law, right? And how many regulations do they have on their book? No wonder they're confused. They can't remember which law is which or whatever, but they've got the Bible, and in the Bible, clearly David, their hero, ate bread that was set apart to the priests. And so what is so wrong with these, uh, this wedding party who's with the bridegroom as they're going through the field having a little bit to eat, right? What's so wrong with feeding the hungry? And, and this is a real conundrum to the Pharisees, to the legalists, because they get vapor lock, right? It's black and white, and I just don't know how to move off that point. Well, because you're trying to deal with this paint-by-number picture, but all you got is the lines and the numbers. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the color. You need the picture of Christ to come full forward for you. And they were having a hard time with this. Um, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? And I uh, you know, the, how he went into the house of God and he ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, right? Have you not read? It's kind of a dig, right? Don't you know your Bible, right? When somebody wants to start arguing Bible verses with you, and, and I'll tell you what, if, if you are one of those people that knows your Bible inside out, chapter and verse, you can quote the addresses and all that kind of stuff, you can tear me to shreds if you want to come up and just start whacking at me. Mike, do you know what the Bible says about this and everything? I'm like, I know it's in there somewhere. I think it's in this book. You know, I'm not an expert at quoting all these things. Now, I've been living it, teaching it, reading it for 30 years now. But no, I don't have that kind of analytic mind that some people do. And this is beautiful that you can quote Scripture. If you do, praise God. Praise God. That is a gift from God. That's a gift of prophecy. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But what is the point of knowing all that? To show that you're wiser and holier than others? Or possibly to help somebody who isn't seeing Christ clearly? Maybe you can help fill in some of the color. Maybe you can help paint a better picture because you know the scriptures, right? And it really is an idea of what do you want to do with this? And Jesus is kind of taking a dig at him. Haven't you read in the scriptures? And he's able to open up that there are obviously exceptions to the rule. I deserve mercy more than sacrifice. And he says, and he also said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? This is uh, another time he uses this title, Son of Man, and it's his favorite title to call himself. We talked about this. comes out of the book of Daniel in chapter 7 where it shows him as deity and it shows him as Messiah and Jesus is taking this to himself. I am the Son of Man and not only am I deity, not only am I Messiah, I am Lord. That means owner, master, ruler, of the Sabbath. I'll tell you what we do and don't do on the Sabbath. In another gospel, he would say, God made the Sabbath for man. Not man, for the Sabbath. He didn't create us that somehow we can just worship on Saturday. It's like, let's see, I got to worship on Saturday, but um, I don't have anybody to do it. Let's see, worship on Saturday. Oh, I'll build people, make people, and then they can go worship. That's so backwards, right? He made the Sabbath work six days, take one day off, enjoy the fruits of your labor, enjoy fellowship with me, enjoy rest and relaxation. He made the Sabbath for man to enjoy it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he pulls this all out, and then, I love it, just to emphasize, Luke shows us what happens next. 
Now it happened on another Sabbath, verse 6, also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. <coughs> Again, Luke makes sure to point out this is on the Sabbath. So already we can see a showdown at the OK Corral, right? You can hear the spurs jingling in the streets, and they're, they're facing off, right? Here it comes again. Also that he entered the synagogue and taught, okay? That was his fashion, remember? He'd go in, they'd look at the scroll, whatever the scroll was. He'd open it up, he'd read it, then he would sit down and explain it to them, expose it. Help them understand the meaning of what God was trying to say. Fill in the blanks. Color in the picture. He's teaching, right? And as this happens, a man was there whose right hand was withered, okay? And, and, and that withered, I'm not sure what the medical diagnosis would have been of it, but it was useless, probably retracted, and, and in a way maybe like an arthritis you've seen or, or some of these kinds of things. But anyways, here's this man. And what's this man doing in the synagogue on Sabbath anyways? What do, you, what do you think he's doing? He's worshiping, right? Isn't that what you're here for this morning? Let me ask you, what are you here for this morning? <laughs> are we here to worship? Or are we here to analyze the stage decorations? <laughs> or why is the pastor wearing a tie today? Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> I know, I, the chismus we call that. It's a chicka, 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 you know. I did this so I can be red, white, and blue in honor of Veterans Day and uh, the elections and, and all these kinds of things. I thought I'd do that. and I, so I like to mess with you, too. That's another reason why I did it. <laughs> I, I just I don't want to go to church and just have be some routine thing, you know, that you just go through the motions, that's, that's, not, that's not why we come here. I want to hear from God. I want to worship God. I want to give to God. I want to enjoy Him. It's the Sabbath. It's my day off. It's the rest. It's my time to stop all that craziness and just come and enjoy fellowship amongst people who love the Lord. Amen? Well, that's what the guy with the withered hand is doing there, right? So the scribes and Pharisees, what do you think they're doing there? We'll see, won't we? Watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Hmm, that Jesus. You know what they say about him. He heals people. He heals on the <gasps> Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Really, I, you know, I've been guilty of this, so maybe there's one or two of you in here that have been guilty of this once in a while, but we understand that Satan does come to church on Sunday morning. You do get that, right? Right? And, and he loves to just wreak havoc amongst all of us. And when you get these thoughts when you're in church that are impure, unholy, you know, judgmental, hmm, why do they dress that way when they come to church? Why do they behave that way? Or you start looking at them. Just know this is not of the Lord. You're sounding like a Pharisee watching to see what they're going to do. If they're going to break one of the rules, right? And so we want to be careful for this. Um, if they could find an accusation against him. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. There we go. He knows everything we're thinking, right? So might as well just confess it. <laughs> you can't get clean with them. He knew their thoughts and said to the man who had a withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. He called him out, right? And this is, again, it's poking his finger in the eye of those people who would withhold mercy to somehow promote themselves, to make themselves look holier than thou, when they were, were the, the total opposite. He knew their thoughts and told the man, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And you can see the tension, right? It's like they're about to, sh who's going to draw first, right? You can just see this okay corral thing going down. Um, then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Don't you love it? 
He loves to ask questions. I can tell you this too. Just if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and you're sharing about whatever it is that you think or believe or you're wondering what's going on, especially if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're, they're you know, kind of contrary to you, um, ask questions, right? If you're talking to a, a, a non-believer, somebody maybe you've been witnessing to for a long time, and they tell you, well, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff. I believe in this, or I believe in that, right? And it's real quick and easy for us sometimes just go throw a bunch of verses at them or something. Instead, why don't you ask, oh, yeah, explain to me, how does that work? And as they start explaining, well, if that happens, then what about this? And just let them explain everything they know about what they know. And once they've told you everything they know about what they know, they come to the end of the rope. And now we're ready to have a conversation. But just ask questions, right? And so Jesus asks them a question. He puts them on the defense. He's going on offense. I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Clearly, the answer is to do good, not do evil, to save life, not to destroy it, right? And, and the Old Testament makes that very clear. They should know that. Verse 10, and when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Hallelujah. Amen. This man just came to worship, probably did not expect the miraculous that day. Unless he knew Jesus was there and he knew his reputation, maybe I'll get healed today. Maybe for some of us, that's what we're here for. Maybe God knows what's withered in you. Maybe it's not a withered hand. Maybe it's a withered heart. Maybe it's a, a withered soul. Maybe, maybe there's something that the world's just worked you hard on. Jesus says, stand up. Stand up. I want to talk to you. Stretch out your hand. Now, the, I'm sure this guy with a withered hand, he's like, that ain't happening. If I could have stretched it out, I would have stretched it out. I can't stretch it out. But you have to understand, when God commands, God enables God's commandments are God's enablements. If he tells you to pray, don't say, Lord, I can't pray. For starters, he's Lord. You don't contradict him. And besides, he already commanded you. He will give you everything you need to do to do what it is that he's asked you to do. Has he asked you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? Has he? Do you think you're capable of it? He's enabled you. He won't command you to do something that can't be done, okay? He might command you to do something that seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus, right? As we can see, the tables are starting to turn, and the, the honeymoon is wearing off with Jesus and his disciples, and they are filled with rage. Now, before this morning is over, one or two of you might be filled with rage, and it may be justified. I don't know, but talk to God about that, right? You hear something, you see something, something happens at church, you're not happy with it, Okay, fair enough, but before you explode like these Pharisees with rage trying to figure out how they're going to catch him and kill him, before you rush off to those kinds of thoughts, just stop and ponder and think, what was their position? What were they thinking? Why were they acting and behaving that way? At any rate, they wanted to figure out how they're going to take care of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He's just healed a man. Beautiful, beautiful testimony of who he is, son of man, Lord of the Sabbath. He's the bridegroom, new wine, fresh patch, new covenant. Everything is coming great. What does he do? It says, now it came to pass in those days he went into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. If you've been keeping track, this is the third time in two chapters that Jesus went away to pray. 
He needed to pray. He needed fellowship with his father. This is one of the things I think we don't get about people in ministry, and you could call Jesus a person in ministry if you want, right? Obviously, he's working sun up to sun down, healing and teaching and preaching and going on and on. You think he gets tired? Absolutely, 100% man, 100% God, but even in the boat, in the middle of a storm, he's laying in the back taking a nap because it's like, man, I just work and work and work and work. I need to go rest. And it's funny, these Pharisees who can be so pharisaical and accuse these guys of working on the Sabbath, what do you think a priest does on the Sabbath? He works, right? People are bringing all their sacrifices, and from sunup to sundown, it's altar, altar, altar. And I mean, I go hunting, and I, I, if the Lord blesses me, I might get one animal. Butchering one animal is a chore. Doing it from sunup to sundown, that is hard work, right? And it's obviously... There's many people in this, in this church, in this ministry, that are, are working right now, right? There's some of them down with the, the children's ministry right now, and there will be others with the kitchen ministry or watching on the parking lot or keep, keeping things safe or the sound crew or the worship ministry. There's all kinds of people working on the Sabbath, right? The heart of it is, are you taking time to get alone to be with the Lord? Jesus, after doing all these things on the Sabbath, goes up onto the mountain and he spends all night in prayer with the Lord. I know that we can't always take the Sabbath day off, okay? In the New Testament, we see that the church started celebrating what is known as the Lord's Day, or the first day of the week, the day of first fruits, when Jesus rose from the grave. And as we go through the New Testament, this is why we gather as a church on Sundays in commemoration of our risen Lord, right? But even then, depending on who you work for, what the schedule they set for you, whatever circumstances might be in your life, things with your health or other factors, you may not be able to worship on the Sabbath day. You might have to work that day. I would just encourage you not to miss the opportunity to rest. If it can't be on Sunday, how's Monday looking for you, right? If it can't be at this time, how is that time looking for you? My question is, are we seeking rest in the Lord? In Colossians, in chapter 2, um, we have this. Uh, Paul writing says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And we read in Hebrews in chapter 4, I'll pick up at verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. That means it's still there. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Our rest is Jesus Christ. Are you resting in Christ? Are you resting in the finished work of of Christ? Are you resting in the commands of Christ? Stand up. Stretch out your hand. Are you resting in the enablements of Christ? Are you allowing Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit and give you that refreshing and renewing? Are you seeking Him in times of prayer? Are you getting alone with Him and just saying, speak, Lord, your servant hears? Well, these are all things that we can pick up from this passage. Chapter, verse 12, <coughs> now it came to pass in those days he went out into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. And we get a list of apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. The twelve disciples, right? I don't know if you've been to Sunday school, maybe you memorized the name of the twelve disciples. To this day, if you caught me in Walmart going down the <laughs> automotive aisle and said, name the twelve apostles, I'd be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I could probably get eight of them, right? But some of these names are a little bit odd. I just want to bring out a couple things here. For starters, it's he spent all night praying before he made this choice, right? And you can imagine how much prayer he must have got before he chose you <laughs> or me. <laughs> oh, Mike, oh, boy, that's, I'm going to have to have a week off for that one. Let's see. 
of course, I, I'm just being humorous, right? But, but this is not something that he was, was rash or he rushed into. For starters, that he called all his disciples together. Disciples, uh, metetes, are people who are followers or adherents, learners, pupils of a person. It's used 269 times in the New Testament. And uh, basically, it, it talks about somebody who's following a learner or an adherent. In this case, they're following Christ. They're learning from Christ. They're adhering to the words of Christ. We call people who follow Christ Christians, okay? And so you are a methetes. You are a disciple. You are a follow or a learner or disciple of Christ. If you've set your heart to say, I'm going to follow you, you lead. I'll put my feet in your footsteps. You teach. I'll obey. You know, you sing. And I'll sing along with you. I'll join you in your work, Lord. This is a disciple. He called them all together, but then he selected apostolos, okay, apostles out of them. This one is used less often, right? Methetes, 269 times. There's disciples everywhere. But apostles, a far more select group, 81 times we see it in the New Testament. And basically, an apostle denotes a messenger or somebody who is sent but not just sent, but sent with a commission, with a purpose. You could call them a delegate or an emissary, an ambassador, an official representative of the king who speaks for the king with the authority of the king. In America, in the United States, we have ambassadors. We have ambassadors pretty much every nation on earth, right? And the president will pick somebody. You're going to be the ambassador for the United States and go on down to Colombia and be our ambassador there. Now, when you're in Colombia, when you're speaking for the United States, your words have authority and power. That's an ambassador. That's somebody who was sent there with the purpose of representing the king and his kingdom, right? And so he picks out 12 who are going to be his unique representatives, spokesmen for the king. And then they're listed here in couplets. It's kind of interesting. And some people have speculated maybe when they sent them out two by two, this might be how they were sent out. And you'll see this listing order in a couple other places, but in other places you'll see the order changed. So I wouldn't put too much stock into the two by two groups, but let's look at who some of these people are. It starts with Simon. Son of Jonah, or Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. Uh, Jesus changed his name to Petros in Matthew 16, 18, or the rock, Peter, okay? In Hebrew, that's Cephas. And so you might go through your Bible, and you'll see Peter, you'll see Simon, and you'll see Cephas, and they're all the same guy, just different names, right? Um, different ways of relating to them. But we know Peter kind of as the fisherman, He's the ringleader of the group. He's the spokesperson for the group. And uh, we see descriptions of him. His personality is impulsive. He's got a quick temper, but he is courageous, right? And so we know this a little bit about Peter. And he wrote in the Bible, your Bible, first and second Peter, right? And so, um, uh, and he's also considered the source for Mark's gospel. Uh, Papias, a second century historian, credits um, Mark as writing down the, the, the gospel that Peter told him, okay? So it's kind of the source for all of that. We also see listed his brother, Andrew. And so you could also call him Andrew Bar-Jonah, if you want. They're both sons of Jonah. Um, and Andrew, kind of interesting, right? Whereas Simon means hearing in Hebrew, Andrew, his brother, gets a Greek name. Kind of interesting in this little dynamic, but in, in their culture, they were multicultural. Yes, they were Jewish, they were Hebrew, but Andrew, his name means manly, right, in, uh, in the Greek. And uh, he was also noted to be one of John the Baptist's disciples, right? He was one of the first ones to see Jesus and start telling people about Jesus. In fact, Andrew is mostly noted in the Bible for bringing other people to Jesus, right? They come and ask him a question. They say, I don't know, but come here and let me tell you about Jesus, right? That was Andrew. And he's enthusiastic, resourceful, inquisitive, wonderful traits that he has. And then we get another couplet, James and John, two brothers, right? They're both sons of Zebedee, Bar-Zebedee. Um, 
James would be known as James the Elder. He is not the James that wrote the book of James in your Bible, okay? Um, and, and, and he's not James the brother of Jesus. He's James the brother of John, we can see right here, right? But it's interesting how both these guys, they start off with a fiery, bold, kind of selfish uh, personality. In fact, they're the ones who are nicknamed by Jesus Boanerges or Sons of Thunder, because they want to kill these people, just strike them with lightning, just because they won't do what they tell them to do, right? But we see later on, they become very loving. Um, and we do see, as we go through the Bible in the book of Acts, um, James here, spoken of, is the first martyr of the apostles. Stephen was martyred earlier, but of these 12, he's going to be the first one to die by a sword at the hand of King Herod, um, the first martyr. And, and then John, his brother, right? Uh, who we know to be quite younger, and he's nicknamed the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Uh, and he did write quite a bit in your Bible, the Gospel of John, right? First, second, third John, and the Revelation. So he was the last of all the apostles to die, and he was the only one of the apostles um, not martyred, okay? He, he died of old age, but not before Nero tried to boil him in, alive in oil and kill him, it didn't work, so he's banished to the Isle of Patmos, where God gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says that he spent his last days in Ephesus, as a bishop of Ephesus, tending to those people there. Then there's Philip listed here. And again, another Greek name. Philip means lover of horses uh, in Greek. So we got another kid that, for whatever reason, they like the Greek names in these Jewish families. And uh, he's noted for being helpful, practical, and quite literal, right? Somebody who just like, black and white kind of guy. Um, for example, in one place, Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house, there's many mansions. And uh, Philip, you know, he says, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough. And Jesus has to tell him, how long have I been with you? And you don't know that if you see the father, you see me, right? So he's quite literal. And then he's paired up with Bartholomew, okay? Also known in your Bibles and other places as Nathaniel. And Bar, we know quite often means son of, and probably son of Tolmai, so his name is probably Nathaniel, son of Tolmai, Nathaniel Bartholomew. Um, and he is uh, the one who Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. You're a, a, a Hebrew without guile, okay, who's just pure and honest. And um, so Bartholomew would be devoted and honest and probably a nationalist, a Zionist, if you will, somebody who's looking for Israel and her Messiah and to see Israel put back together in, in its rightful place. Then we come to uh, Matthew. We just discussed him earlier. Also, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and we know him. He's a tax collector, right? He's working for the Romans. Um, and uh, he's also noted in the scriptures as somebody who has a gift of tachygraphia, which is, say, speed writing, right? Which is why we have the Gospel of Matthew and all these wonderful quotes and, and wonderful things here. He had these wonderful gifts, um, and he was very penitent, uh, very devoted. He's very hospitable. He opened up his house to all his friends to have a party, and uh, he's well-educated amongst the group, okay? Um, and he, obviously, is the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And we get to Thomas, also known as Didymus, okay, which means twin, but not like he had a brother or a sister that he was twin to. Double-minded is what it really is a reference to, and we nicknamed him Doubting Thomas, right, because he would question um, the Lord in several places, but really, I, I like to think of him as more inquisitive, possibly doubtful, but we see that he is courageous and he's very faithful. And then we come to James and Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus. Um, and there's a group of people, we talked about the Zealots, there was a group of people in Jesus' day that are called the Zealots because they were full of zeal for Israel, and they wanted to overthrow the Roman government uh, conspiracy theories, riots, insurrections, all within their purview. This is what a zealot would be all about. How do we make Rome crumble and we come back again? So extremely politically active. James, the son of Alphaeus, some people say he may have been a member of the zealots, but we really know almost nothing about him uh, from the scriptures. Then Simon called the zealot. He truly was named a zealot, okay? Very nationalistic, revolutionary. Uh, but he was patriotic, he was loyal, and very, very, very passionate, okay? And then we get Judas, the son of James, or Libaeus, or Thaddeus, he's also called. He's also called Jude. He's got all kinds of different names. Poor kid, you know, doesn't know what to call himself. 
Um, he did not write Jude. He's not the brother of Jesus. Um, and he's also inquisitive and confused. And some people think he might be lined up with this nationalistic, Zionistic, zealot party. And then finally, we come on down to the last pair, Judas, son of James. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the last one. And uh, then Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means from Kerioth. And Kerioth was a city in the Judean hills near Jerusalem. Judas uh, from Kerioth, Judas Iscariot, was the only one of the 12 that Jesus is naming here that wasn't from the Galilee region. All the rest of them, they're noted for their accents. They're kind of country bumpkins, a little bit crude, a little bit simple compared to the more sophisticated Judean like Judas Iscariot. But we do know um, that he was greedy, deceitful, treacherous, and remorseful when he got caught. Uh, and he was the treasurer of the twelve, and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, so he hung himself. And we see in the book of Acts that then he was replaced by Matthias so that we could have these 12 apostles all together. Jesus wanted to get deputized officials, ambassadors, emissaries, spokespersons for the king and for the kingdom. You guys, I'm going to train up, and you're going to be the ones, when you speak, it's as though I'm speaking through you, okay? And this was the idea of these 12s. In the book of Acts, when they replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias, they came up with basically three qualifications. One, they had to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus from the beginning, from the baptism with John the Baptist all the way to the ascension into heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection. They also had to be people who personally saw Jesus after the resurrection, and they had to be people who were appointed by Jesus. So you could just couldn't say, oh, I'm an apostle, right? God sent me, right? It's like the Blues Brothers. I think it was like, we're on a mission from God. You know, it's like, okay. Um, I'm not saying they weren't, and I'm not saying I'm not. I'm not saying you aren't, but we're not apostles, okay? Uh, in that sense, the big A or capital A apostle. They were deputized and appointed and sent by Jesus Christ. Now, in the Bible, you're going to find some other sent ones, apostolos, okay? I use that with a lowercase a, which is just a description. And we'll find a lot of them are not sent by Jesus. They're sent by the church, which brings us to a little bit of a conundrum that um, people kind of like to wonder over, and I'm probably not going to solve it for you this morning. But what about Paul? Was he sent by Jesus? Was he somebody who saw Jesus after his resurrection? Was he somebody commissioned by Jesus? You know, people can flip-flop all over the place on that one. Um, in Acts 15, 8, uh, Paul says, I saw Jesus, okay, and, and as, as we go through that. In Acts 19, he was commissioned by Jesus um, that you're going to be a spokesman for, to me to Jews and Gentiles and kings. And uh, in Acts 13, we hear the story where he was sent out. Um, but in that particular case, I have to say it was from the church in Antioch. But he certainly had a commission, and he certainly was a sent one. And in fact, even Peter in uh, 2 Peter 3.15 acknowledges the writings of Paul, and he calls him his beloved brother, and he's definitely a part of the team. But here, Jesus prays all night, and he picks these 12 to commission them to go out and take his word into the kingdom. And as we go through this, there's just a couple things I'm getting ready to kind of wrap up a little bit of what we're looking at this morning. Some have Jewish names, some have Greek names, some are bold, some are shy, some are ambitious, some are content, some are educated, some are simple, some are young, some are old. They have various gifts, various passions, various impediments. Uh, they're all known to argue amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest, right? It sounds like you guys. <laughs> no, I include myself with that, okay? It sounds like us. We're just a whole bunch of folks, sinners saved by grace. You've got this gift, you've got that gift. You've got this character, I wasn't going to say flaw, Marcy, but <laughs> Marcy says flaw, okay. <laughs> We got our stuff, right? Praise God, he's not going to leave us the way we are. But look at these guys as they get together, right? Simon the Zealot, right? He was even known possibly to be an assassin, okay? He was that passionate. How do you think it was like when they would have to, like, go someplace 
and Matthew, why don't you go with Simon? Matthew, the tax, tax collector, works for the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot. How are they going to get along together? This could be really interesting. Or Nathaniel, no guile, just holy, loves nation of Israel and, and all these things. And then why don't you go hang out with Judas Iscariot, the guy that's stealing and cheating and, and you're so pure and holy. You could see where there would be conflict, right? There's going to be places where they can rub up against one another. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. The Bible, Bible clearly states that is the case. They did rub up against each other. And yet, it's interesting as we look at this, they all, save for John, died a death of a martyr. They lived their life and gave their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. They never failed their assignment. They were deputized. They were hand-selected to be emissaries, ambassadors, and go and make disciples of all nations. And they went around to the nations, and they lived their life to the death for Jesus Christ. And so it's a wonderful thing. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, at verse 1, Paul, now writing, says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And how are we going to do that? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. Okay? We're on the same team, gang. And uh, as we go into this, I, it, it just, I, I can't help but think of us. We opened this morning just thanking our veterans for what they're doing. We're looking at celebrating them on the 8th. You know, uh, we've got uh, elections coming up. We've got a country that's just terribly divided. Uh, I was in Treasure Valley the last two days visiting our kids. I was at an intersection in Caldwell waiting for the light to change and coming across in front of me as she turned in front of me was a lady and she's holding a sign as, as she drives by and she's looking at me and the sign says lobotomies for Republicans. <laughs> okay, not that I'm not picking sides or whatever, but we're so divided, right? It, I don't know if you get out of a bubble once in a while, go to, go to Treasure Valley, go to Ada, and it's not, it's not Minicasha. We're in two different worlds, right? And we're both in Idaho. And, 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 and somehow we've got to find a way as a church to work together. But um, as Christians, we are commissioned. We, Jesus says, all authority therefore, has been given unto me. And with all authority in heaven and on earth, all that authority, he then tells us, go. Don't just hang out in your pew. Don't just, you know, drift. You've got an assignment. You are to go, right, into all the world and make disciples, mathetes, followers, adherers, and, and, and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. In just a minute, he's going to give what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount? This one is done in a flat level area, so they call it the Sermon on the Plain. They're really the same message, just a little bit different version and all of that. But in this, Jesus is commissioning us to go into all the world, to pray, to stand, to send, to go, to vote. You know, historians credit churches of the mid-1700s in colonial America with the inspiration and the call to liberty that led to the birth of the United States of America. They had a derisive term they used to talk to those up in the church, the people um, loyal to the British government, they called the pastors of these churches the black-robed regiment. Now, these pastors weren't militant. These pastors weren't fomenting violence. These pastors were preaching liberty. They were preaching dignity. They were preaching Imago Dei, the image of God 
that we need to treat one another well, wholesome, and properly. They, they taught against tyranny. They taught liberty. They taught against slavery. They taught dignity. And they taught the Holy Scriptures. They fulfilled Jesus' mandate to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I'm going to share with you something, and we're going to go. And like I said, some of you might want to rage. And if you do, rage on me. Come up and rage on me. But I think there's a place for a, di a, a discourse, right? We can talk about issues that are going on, especially with the elections right around the corner. Do you know that po multiple polls from multiple agencies over the last several election cycles show that in the last several cycles, 50% of the church was res registered to vote. And from there, it, it even goes, it, it's a little worse than that. Of those 50%, 50% of those did vote. They were registered, but they did vote. In the last election cycle in 2020, the party in power, there was 155,506,286 votes cast, according to the official records. Whether they're true or not, you can decide that for yourself. But if you split the country and you look at the election, the election was won, 155 million votes, and it was only won by 4 million. Now, if you take the number of Christians in America, self-professing about 100 million, and you take half of that, that's 50 million. You take half of that, that's 25 million. If we could just get the church to get up and vote, we could change the course of America we could change the course of our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. Now, I, I have to say, I'm looking for, the, for Jesus to come again any day now, right? But he does tell us to occupy until he comes, to be about my father's business, to do the things that we need to do to stand up for him. You know, there was a, there's a gentleman by the name of Pastor or Bishop Art Hodges, and uh, he wrote 60 Contrasts between the two major political parties in America. Now, what I'm going to say here is political. But, you know, Jesus is political. I asked you last week, what part of your life is Jesus not Lord of? Is he Lord of your spiritual life? Is he Lord of your family? Is he Lord of your community? Is he Lord of your politics? Is there anything that we can't talk about when we talk about the Lord? Well, this uh, Bishop Art Hodges put together 60 contrasts between the two major political parties. One of these two is going to hold sway in a couple days. We don't know yet. We haven't cast our votes. It may not be too late to change the outcome. I don't know. And depending on which team you're playing on, you're going to work hard for what you believe. And I will respect that. But I would ask you to vote biblically, okay? Those with the Judeo-Christian belief already have a platform to stand on. It's called the B-I-B-L-E. To teach them to observe all that I have commanded them. And we need to be biblical voters. We need to vote as ambassadors for the king and for the kingdom of God. And so this is our, our, our list. Biblical voters have developed a clear-cut moral and ethical worldview based on biblical principles and know the values of the party with which they vote. A biblical voter aligns with the party that most represents their Judeo-Christian values and makes a sincere effort to investigate the issues and voting records of candidates and how they compare with God's non-negotiable moral values. Politics and elections are about right versus left. Pulpits and biblical voters are about right versus wrong. Okay? Align your vote to do what is right in the Lord's sight. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So I'm going to go through a short list. I'm not going to cover all of it, but these comparisons of political parties. Worship team, come on up. Yeah. We'll need them when I get done here. <clears throat> okay, and here's a couple things that I just, I, I share. 
If you can't conscientiously vote for the person, you don't like the person, vote for the position. Vote for the platform. This is just uh, two major parties basically in play here, and they have published party platforms. You can look them up, read their platforms, right? And it's interesting, the, the power of the party platforms comes to play when they get in office. 89% um, of people claiming to be conservatives vote according to their party's platform. 74% uh, of those claiming to be liberals vote according to their party platforms. You might not like the person, but look for what they represent, okay? You can't, you're, they're, all, they're all fallen human beings, and they're all going to let you down. They're all going to disappoint you, but at least find one who aligns with values that you share. Look at these comparisons of these two parties and contrast. One platform mentions the Bible, the other doesn't. One mentions divine, the other doesn't. One mentions creator, the other doesn't. One mentions prayer, the other doesn't. One mentions singing, the other doesn't. One mentions praise, the other doesn't. One mentions pastors, the other doesn't. One mentions the Catholics, the other doesn't. One mentions preaching, the other doesn't. One mentions bipartisan, the other one doesn't. One mentions fathers, the other doesn't. One mentions morality, the other doesn't. One mentions strong families, the other doesn't. One mentions religious liberty, the other doesn't. One mention, mentions traditional family, the other doesn't. One mentions inalienable rights, the other doesn't. One mentions traditional marriage, the other doesn't. One mentions sanctity of human life, the other doesn't. One mentions tradi traditional family values, the other doesn't. One mentions traditional religious beliefs, the other doesn't. One mentions Judeo-Christian heritage, the other doesn't. One mentions the Declaration of Independence, the other doesn't. One mentions God bless America, the other doesn't. Kind of tracking with me here? Biblical values. One mentions praise two times and protest zero times, while the other mentions protest four times and praise zero times. One mentions God 15 times and LGBT zero times, while another mentions God one time and LGBT 26 times. One mentions the Bible three times, the other does not mention it. One mentions pastors three times, the other doesn't mention it. Fathers six times, no mention in the other. One mentions preaching two times, the other doesn't. One mentions bipartisan eight times, the other doesn't. One mentions religious liberty six times, the other doesn't. One mentions inalienable rights ten times, the other does not. One mentions the rights of conscience six times, the other does not. One mentions the Declaration of Independence four times, the other does not. One affirms that the Bill of Rights lists religious liberty with its rights of conscience as the first freedom to be protected. The other doesn't even mention the U.S. Constitution's Bill of Rights. One mentions faith 26 times. The other mentions it 11 times. One mentions church four times. The other one times. One affirms that our First Amendment rights are not given to us by the government, but are rights we inherently possess. The other does not. One affirms the right of prayer at public school events. The other does not. One party platform acknowledges the Bill of Rights lists, acknowledges the Bill of Rights lists religious liberty as the first freedom protected. The other does not. One party platform defines marriage exclusively as joining one man with one woman, does not accept the Supreme Court's redefinition of marriage, and urges its reversal. The other does not. One party platform endorses legislation that will bar government discrimination against individuals and businesses for acting on the belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. The other says, we will reject the use of broad religious exemptions to allow businesses, medical providers, social service agencies, and others to discriminate. You can fill in, and others, churches will be prevented. One party platform proclaims, we value the right of America's churches, pastors, and religious leaders to preach and speak freely according to their faith. The other declares, they believe that the freedom of religion is a fundamental human right, and we will never use protection of that right as a cover for discrimination. One party platform states, they believe the federal gov government specifically Specifically, the IRS is constitutionally prohibited from policing or censoring the speech of America's 
churches. You may have been thinking to yourself, boy, Mike, you're going to get yourself in trouble with the government. Do you know that we do not need the IRS to be tax exempt? That is granted to us outside of a 5013C that we can preach politics, we can preach culture, we can preach society, we can preach every issue that impinges on human rights. We are free to do that as a church with no fear or threat from the government. Not once since the Johnson Amendment was brought in line back in the early 1960s has a church ever lost their tax-exempt right for preaching candidates or platforms or policies. So we're in strong ground. I'm just going to close up. I could go on. I think I might have covered about 45 of the 60 different comparisons. Question is, which party best represents your biblical values? You might not like the people. <laughs> I don't like some of them. <laughs> but do you want somebody who's going to stand up for the cause of the church or shut the church down? Because this is what they tried to do it to us two years ago. And I'm picking on both parties right now. Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. I don't think that has anything to do with the way they sit in the legislature. I mean, that was before they even built that building. I'm, why are you laughing? I'm just trying to, be, I'm trying to keep it fair. The bottom line is we're not for donkeys and we're not for elephants. We're for the Lamb of God. But if we do not pray, if we do not stand, if we do not vote, we're basically giving the enemy just free reign just to continue just destroying lives. And I, and I just it would implore you, get out and vote. If you don't know how to vote, come and ask me. I'll tell you how. have a conversation with your friends, right? And, and stay away from lobotomies for Republicans and that kind of talk. It doesn't fix anything, okay? Um, probably went off in the deep end this morning. But at the same time, God has blessed America. God has given us the only nation on earth created in liberty, with, with the hope of, of, of bringing the gospel to the planet Earth and has done amazing things with us. And it really is time, church, for us to pray, stand, vote, and get involved. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Lord, for this new wine that you have put into a new wineskin, your church. Have you filled us with your Holy Spirit? How you have brought the law and the regulations full circle till we can see they're really a picture of you in your grace and your goodness. Help us, Lord, as a church to stand up for what is good, what is moral, what is right. Help us to be part of the solution. Help us, Lord, uh, this week, if any way we can, to share truths with people and not to disparage, not to ridicule, not to slander, but just to tell the truth. The truth will set us free. Help us to be about your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Habern, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.